Hey, everybody. This is David Green. I'm the co-founder of Fearless Media and your host here on Left, Right, and Center. This is, of course, the show where we take on all the political issues, any one of them, even the issues that might be so complicated that it's dividing your family these days. Last week, Brazil experienced what looked eerily and hauntingly similar to the January 6th insurrection in the United States. Rioters protested outside Brazil's Congress. They stormed government buildings, all driven by a false claim that the election was stolen. Like January 6th, the events were organized by online activism from far-right groups who supported former President Jair Bolsonaro. Also, like January 6th, the disinformation campaign had been brewing for months online. And yet, despite this, there were not enough security forces to prevent this surge. But... Although there were many obvious similarities to the event here in the United States, there were some key differences. Unlike Donald Trump, Bolsonaro allowed for the peaceful transfer of power to Brazil's legitimately elected president, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva. And after the violent events in the Brazilian capital, Bolsonaro denounced them, though his response was largely described as muted. We have Mo Alethi back with us to talk about this and so many other things. He's executive director at Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service, served as communications director for the Democratic National Committee, and also advised Hillary Clinton. And we have Sarah Isger back, a lawyer who was spokesperson at the Department of Justice under President Trump and is now staff writer at The Dispatch. Hello, Sarah. Hello, Mo. Hey. Hello. I mean, I feel like we talk almost every week about challenges to democracy in the United States and abroad, but... Here we are again, um, and I, I think I, I would love to focus first on just the reality here that this was not led by just one strongman figure. And, you know, the three of us have talked about this before. It, it, it might not be just one person like Donald Trump or or Bolsonaro. There's, there's something happening in the world that leads to events like this that led to the, the right-wing plot uh, to attack Germany's parliament. Um, I mean— I'll start with you, Mo. What, what, what is your reaction to these events in Brazil? Um, terrible, awful, completely not surprising. When you take a sense of alienation, couple that with the ease of online organizing, plus the rapidity of the spread of misinformation and disinformation— You've created a perfect storm for this type of thing, as we've seen now in Brazil, as we've seen in Germany, and as we've sadly seen in the United States. So it's not surprising. There are so many similarities. Um, Bolsonaro and Trump themselves were admittedly close. Steve Bannon was kind of whispering the same things in each of their ears. Um, Bannon, who praised January 6th and who just the other day called the the people down in Brazil who stormed the government building freedom fighters. Tucker Carlson um, echoing that same sentiment too, we should say. So there's a lot of similarities. Um, but it goes back to a theme that we have discussed on the show a number of times. Um, this is bigger than just any one person in any of these places. There is a sense of um, anger and alienation that are pitting people against one another. And that's not to justify or excuse these types of actions, whether it's at the U.S. Capitol or at the government building down in Brazil. 
But it's to explain why it's so easy for strong men to share misinformation, disinformation, and have it work so effectively at turning people out to participate in these types of violent episodes. We've got to deal with the root if we're ever going to solve the problem. Well, and Sarah, let me ask you, I mean, obviously there are these larger, deeper forces in in all of this, but I'm worried there's like a blueprint situation going on that, you know, obviously Bolsonaro and and Trump, as most said, were were close and, and, and people who support them kind of share ideas and information like it is part of this that even that makes it all even scarier and worrisome is that there can be like a, a model like and, and a country like Brazil can look at what happened in, in the United States. The forces exist and they're like, OK, there's a blueprint. We know how to do this. I want to be careful because I am not a historian of uh, South American politics um, or anything like that. But at the same time, we have this pretty American centric take on all of this, that somehow something happened in this country And therefore, the other countries are modeling after us when, you know, I think it would be just as fair to say it's not that Brazil, uh, you know, turned into America on January 6th. Maybe America briefly turned into Brazil, Mm. right? Yeah, good point. um, Mm -hmm. And this is in no way to minimize what happened in either country, frankly. But again, the idea that they're modeling after us or anything like that just sort of forgets what's been happening, frankly, Worldwide, this has been an international phenomenon of populace. And I don't think it's particularly surprising that in some countries with populist movements, they become violent. I think the only reason that we feel the comparison so acutely in this case is the timing, frankly. Um, and while certainly they were overrunning uh, government buildings, you know, it wasn't the same. This wasn't to block the certification of the election, it wasn't just their legislative building. I mean, They overran basically every government building. They had already been blocking highways and camping near military um, installations. This was the presidential palace and the Supreme Court. So I say all this because I think instead of talking about January 6th and focusing on that, it misses the point. The point is this overall movement of populism gaining ground internationally Um, And why that's happened and what we will say 20, 50 years from now about this moment um, in our history. Was it the 2008 financial crisis that caused some of this? Um, Unless, you know, America had this one day and now we're exporting it everywhere. That feels pretty American centric to me. No, I think that's a good point. We fall into that trap way too often that 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 everything happening in the world is somehow tied or rooted in in this country, which could not be farther from the truth. And I'm glad you pointed that out. Um, I, you know, I I wonder, you, and I'm definitely not a historian of South American history and politics either. We should say, but um, the reality in Brazil is it's a pretty young democracy, and so. I don't know, like there's there's something about this disinformation campaign, and I think we certainly saw this in January 6th in the United States too, but these people who were performing these acts of violence because they believed all of the stuff that they were hearing, many of them were viewing themselves as warriors to protect democracy. And that is just a a paradox that that is really frightening to me, that we're all talking about how important democracy is. A lot of these people who are committing acts of violence against symbols of democracy in their country believe that they are fighting for democracy. And I think that just underscores how these different disinformation campaigns are 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 so fundamental in all of this. And, and I don't know what we do about it. 
Yeah, and and I think Sarah's right. You can't, to me, it's not that we are exporting what happened on January 6th to the rest of the world. It is that if, if it can happen here, as it did two years ago, it can happen anywhere. It underscores the fragility of democracy in this era. Because I think you're 100% right. And polling in this nation bears that out, David. If you ask people, are you are you for democracy? You're not going to get very many no's. That, that the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, the people who stormed the, the government buildings in Germany or in Brazil or wherever this happens, they do see themselves as guardians of democracy. They do believe this misinformation, disinformation. They believe that, that their way of life is under assault by larger forces and that there, there's an exasperation that they're feeling that leads them to believe that this type of response is the only recourse left to them. And that is incredibly dangerous. And I do think we need to look at some sort of (laughs) whole of society approach to tackling this. We can talk about government reforms. We can talk about media reforms. We certainly can talk about social media and technology company uh, reforms. But what is it that has alienated these people so much, so much that they believe that all of society is purposely working to keep them down and they have no other recourse? What is it that has alienated them so much that they believe what is clearly, not just misinformation, disinformation, clear lies What is it that makes them so quick to believe these clear lies that they feel they have no other recourse? And you're right. So you're saying that that's the real key. It's it's not fixing the disinformation problem, even though that's a big problem, but it's finding why people are are vulnerable to to, to these lies. I mean, I think we have to tackle the problem at both ends. As as daunting a task as that may be, we, we have to figure out how to stop this misinformation, disinformation from penetrating but we also have to figure out the root causes of why it is so easy for it to penetrate. Is is part of it because, I mean, and I'm thinking about, you know, my time in the classroom as a, as a student, just having civics lessons driven into me. And I mean, I, I've often wondered, like, is the classroom, and it, again, even the classroom is not hidden from politics, obviously, because we see all these debates about what should be taught in classrooms. So I, this might be just idealistic of me, but but is... Is that one place where at least we can hope for doing something about this for future generations? I mean, both of you teach young students. Is is there something that the teachers in, in high school, college, elementary, middle school can do to to just remind people that 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 facts exist, that the truth matters, and those things are a fundamental pillar of our democracy and be careful what you believe. Basically, we're still teaching from a curriculum from 150 years ago. Yes, we've updated it with new information, but the idea of reading, writing, arithmetic um, is is too old. And in fact, we should be focused on, well, now this sounds stupid because going way, way back, let's go much, much older and do a lot more of logic, basic logic, because uh, some of what's missing here is um, being able to understand how to pick apart arguments into their component parts, when things follow, when things are non sequitur. And then, 
you know, another piece of that is a, a literacy, a media literacy. And I know that some schools do try to do that. By the way, statistics is on part of my logic curriculum. Oh my God. And frankly, uh, <laughs> very well-educated people in this country often suffer from statistical problems. Frankly, you know, we've seen the replication crisis in our social sciences. You know, we'll see blaring headlines. So you're teaching people to be skeptical, basically. I mean, to be be skeptical and be more discerning about what you're what you're hearing and listening to and believing. Um, And to understand part of the logical problems with some of these, part of the statistical problems, and part of how, frankly, headlines or TikTok or these other things work in their component parts to understand how you sometimes might be being manipulated. let 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 me give just one anecdotal example of this. My daughter, who is in the seventh grade in a school here in Washington, when she was in the second grade, her class did a week-long unit where they studied a tree octopus, a breed of octopus that lives in trees. Every day, they looked at a different website that taught them facts about this. On Friday, as they were getting ready to, to sort of wrap up the week, the big reveal came. It was all fake. Wow. My daughter came home that night beside herself. And at dinner, I asked her, why she was so upset. And she told us this story. And she looked at me and she said, Daddy, did you know not everything on the internet is real? She's now in seventh grade, coming off the heels of the pandemic where sort of a lot of a lot of young people's entire social structure, entire information flow was digital, right? That's a lesson that has stuck with her. Not everything on the internet is real. That's so important. I mean, maybe she's going to grow up not, I mean, always questioning. Like if, if there's always a disinformation question. campaign, hopefully when she's an adult, I mean, she's not going to fall into these traps that, that, as you said, so many people fall into, even if she's for some reason vulnerable to them in some way. That's right. And I think it's worth, all, I mean, I love that. And now uh, the tree octopus is going to stay with me forever. Me too. That's yeah, so Google perfect. it. Everyone, remember the tree octopus lesson that, that what you see on the internet might not be true. And yes. that includes when it comes to politics. It includes when it comes to saying elections were stolen. I mean, this is, we're making it sound so easy, but seriously. Um, an A plus to that teacher. What a great concept and great execution. I do, though, it's worth noting, like part of this is also, though, teaching the difference between being skeptical and being cynical. I don't think yes. we want to raise a generation of cynics. That's right. um, being yeah. skeptical is asking the questions and and being willing to ask questions that might make you look dumb. Like, wh- why have I never heard of a tree octopus before? And part of that is saying like, well, could the election have been stolen? Could there be facts to support this? I mean, that's fine too, just because it's unpopular to ask. Um, cynicism is not something I want to instill at all. No, we can't teach people to believe nothing, um, but ask ask questions and and don't assume everything you hear is right. Um, well, I am glad. I'm going to always remember the tree octopus lesson. Mo, thank you for that. Um, and I love that we got there from the uh, insurrection in Brazil. Uh, we are going to be right back to talk about President Biden's visit to the southern border and the backlash he's been getting from both parties. Uh, back with more left, right, and center in a minute. You're hearing civilized yet provocative opinions from across the political spectrum. Now we need to know what you think. Tweet us at LRC KCRW. Okay, we are back again with more Left, Right, and Center. I'm David Green. We have Moa Lathy and Sarah Isger here. Moa is communications director at the DNC. Sarah was spokesperson at the Department of Justice under President Trump. Uh, we're going to talk about immigration. Last week, President Biden made 
What many people consider to be a long overdue visit to the southern border. His visit came on the heels of an announcement that his administration plans to crack down on asylum seekers from Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Haiti. His new plan would increase restrictions on people seeking asylum via the U.S.-Mexico border and would send even legitimate cases back to Mexico. Now, the response to this plan, really from both sides, was pretty swift and pretty harsh. The right accused the president of this being too little too late, while many immigration advocates and a handful of Democrats said this plan is inhumane. Uh, we have a special guest to talk about this today. It's Lauren Villagran, a reporter from the El Paso Times who covers the border and U.S.-Mexico immigration. Uh, Lauren, thanks for spending a few minutes with us. I know it's been a pretty busy time for you. Yeah, thanks for the invitation, David. And hello to everyone in El Paso. I love that city dearly and can't wait to come back. I want to start just with a broad question. I mean, it the border is just the most politicized place I can imagine right now. Even just talking about it brings out these strong responses from from the left and the right. I mean, are, are you seeing any hope for depoliticizing this and finding some solutions that that everyone could kind of get around? Depoliticizing the border? Uh, no, I, I don't. I don't think so. I think that the border is a place that it's just um, become a symbol in the imagination of Americans, and it's also become um, a lever that both Republicans and Democrats uh, use constantly uh, to get votes. So, so as far as depoliticizing the border anytime soon, I don't think so. Um, is there hope? If you're asking about comprehensive immigration reform or an opportunity that Congress might take to overhaul the nation's immigration system, you know, I, I always like to think that that there's hope, and certainly people on the border um, from both sides of the political aisle would like to see the nation's immigration laws overhauled so that issues, uh, you know, don't arise here, um, you know, at the, at the border crossing. I mean, but then they get so tempted to just pull those levers, as you said. Um, I, what what does it feel like in El Paso right now? I mean, you, you have a you know a growing number of migrants who have descended on the city over the past year. Um, I mean, unprecedented numbers. What 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 is what is the mood like as as people who live in El Paso are, are watching this? Yeah, I mean, I I feel like I'd like to take the opportunity to remind listeners that El Paso is a border city you know, and it's a great place to live. You know, it's 60 degrees here and sunny. And this idea that the city is um, under some sort of siege is 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 not correct. Have we seen increased immigration through the El Paso um, border in the past six months? Absolutely. And, you know, it has risen in given weeks to the point of a humanitarian crisis, you know, with migrants sleeping on the street and the city and county needing, you know, finding um, finding it necessary to open up, you know, large shelters where people can be temporarily housed as they, you know, make their travel plans to move on to their destinations in the U.S., um, so, you know, folks here in El Paso, again, both sides of the political aisle, tend to look at issues around immigration through a humanitarian perspective. You know, I've heard both the current Democrat mayor of El Paso and the former Republican mayor of El Paso talk about this issue in the same way as a humanitarian crisis. So, you know, what people in El Paso actually see on a daily basis 
isn't necessarily much unless you're you happen to be downtown in a particular two to three block radius where there are still migrants um, sleeping on the street. Um, but I think actually a lot of El Pasoans witness the issue through the lens of, of national media. Well, let me ask you about that. I mean, Governor Greg Abbott of Texas pulled this, you know, this pretty high profile stunt, sending a group of migrants to Vice President Kamala Harris's house in Washington on Christmas Eve. And and he delivered a, a scathing letter to President Biden during his visit to El Paso, blaming the president for this crisis, specifically in El Paso, where people, as you said, are camping out. And, you know, Abbott went so far as to blame Biden for the fentanyl crisis, claiming drug cartels have been emboldened by Democrats um, and the lax attitude, in his view, at the border. I, I just wonder... If we, in some imaginary world, were able to take out kind of the political stunts, um, to take out words like invasion, which, I mean, a lot of a lot of people on the right use to, to describe what's going on. If we were to take out the incredibly horrifying undertone of racism through all of this, you know, is there anything that people should be afraid of? Like, is there is there a logical argument to say that that if people are on the streets, sleeping, that there's humanitarian crisis, that people who live in El Paso should fear for their own safety in some way. Because fear is so much at the heart of what the right is saying. That's a really interesting way to to put the question. Like, is there anything that people should truly fear? And I'm I'm honestly not, not sure how to answer that. Like, I can tell you that there haven't been police reports, for example, of migrants committing any crimes. Um, From the perspective of undocumented immigration is a documented process where, um, you know, U.S. border authorities know who is entering the country and who, you know, they are processing them and then releasing them to the street, which is in a large measure what happens. Um, You know, is it better to know who a person is who is entering the country? I mean, I think arguably you could say yes. You know, should the conversation be how does the United States of America approach a new world, um, you know, new geopolitical realities um, in our immigration system? I think that there there ought to be space for a conversation about that. Because when you really think that our nation's immigration laws have not really demonstrably changed since 1986, with the exception of a small 1996 reform, you know, what was the world like in the 1980s? It was a different group of people coming to the United States at the Southwest border. It was an entirely different world. It was before the internet. I mean, it's it's really incredible to think that, you know, we're trying, you know, the country is trying to manage immigration flows directly at the border um, with laws that that are that are frankly outdated and old. So I, I wish the question wasn't about fear, so to speak, but but rather about like what are what is it that that the US wants from its immigration system? Sarah, Republicans who who really capitalize on on fear and talk about things like an invasion, I mean it, what is how do you feel about that? I mean if there's not a real reason to fear, are they just using words like that for political benefit and taking us away from potentially finding, you know, a real solution to a humanitarian crisis? Let's be clear. Both sides have been using this issue for political benefit for 20 years now. Yeah, this is yeah. 
I don't think any, I think no, anyone denies that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and the, the problem is like other things in our politics, the actual issue, you can talk about at some high level. Oh, there's an immigration problem. It's an illegal immigration problem, whatever. But when you drill down, it becomes a lot of little problems and those problems morph or they shift. Uh, you know, the immigration problem that we had during the Bush years looks very different than the one we had now. I mean, that was predominantly men coming over the border from Mexico looking for work. And so the solutions that one might want to pursue in solving that illegal immigration problem is very different than during the Obama years, where they suddenly had an influx of unaccompanied minors, when then we started seeing a lot of families from the Northern Triangle countries trying to uh, you know, escape violence in those countries. Uh, now, the countries have changed, right? We're now looking at Venezuela or Haiti. Um, and so, you know, for instance, I, I just feel like I hear people propose relatively simplistic solutions with good hearts, you know? Um, so for instance, on the one side, why don't we economically help these countries? Great idea. We've tried doing that and it has worked to some extent, but then the problem just shifts somewhere else. So unless you're willing to say we're going to help all countries that are, uh, you know, economically less advantageous than the United States, that alone is not going to solve this problem. On the other hand, you know, shut down the border. Okay, well, hopefully we've seen now that when you do that, when you, uh, for example, particularly decrease legal immigration, you've changed the incentive structure where if there's no help of ever coming to this country legally, well, then maybe it does make sense to pay $10,000 to a drug cartel to help smuggle you over the border. And the result of that has been enriching. And I mean, I, I can't underline and bold that word enough. We are enriching dangerous, violent non-governmental drug cartels with our immigration policy right now. And so I don't hear a lot of people willing to engage in some of the um, nuances of the problem. And as you say, the result is a true humanitarian crisis where there are a thousand plus people dying every year, uh, drowning in the Rio Grande, dying in the desert, in the back of trucks that they've been you know, left to die in through the heat or lack of oxygen horrible things. And in the meantime, the drug cartels are doing just fine because they get their $10,000 up front. Lauren, is, is that fair? I mean, if it's not, you know, maybe, you know, migrants are not going to hurt you. But just the fact that you have so many people who are lacking support and services, um, you know, out in the streets, that that, that might be a, a scene that people who live in El Paso don't necessarily want. Yeah, I should also clarify, like when I was saying that I haven't seen police reports, I'm speaking specifically of El Paso. But I, you know, um, I think it's important to note that there are right now um, two different patterns of migration happening. There are the asylum seekers. Uh, actually, I should say three now. There are asylum seekers who have been, you know, lining up at the border fence, waiting to be let in to be processed by Border Patrol. There are people who might call themselves asylum seekers, but who, because they are subject to the Title 42 expulsions, are sneaking in illegally or unlawfully um, and, and waiting in downtown El Paso for some kind of relief that I expect they're unlikely to get. And then there is the third pattern of people who try to cross the border um, and try to evade border patrol uh, control. And those people could be anyone from, you know, someone who who just wants to work in the United States to someone who uh, may be a smuggler or who is, you know, trafficking drugs. So I, I don't want to 
um, say that that there that there are no problems or that you know there there isn't um, there there's nothing illegal happening. I mean, of course that there is, um, but you know people need to understand the different patterns and and who folks are. So the, the migrants who you know are in downtown El Paso um, may or may not be here lawfully, um, but they they don't pose a direct threat. Um, but again, you know, without pathways um, to to apply for asylum, to apply for a work visa, people will continue to come unlawfully. Mo, let me let me just finish with you. I, you know, after Biden visited El Paso, we saw this bipartisan group of senators, um, Kirsten Sinema, Mark Kelly, John Cornyn, meet up in El Paso and and take part in a roundtable discussion um, with the mayor. Does that is that a sign of hope that that maybe there's an effort from both parties to to really come together around something here? Um, I'm not going to hold my breath. I, I I'd like to believe so. I'd like to believe that there are people of goodwill in both parties who understand that the situation is is untenable and and that we have to do something and that you know it's time. But like immigration, now that we've passed infrastructure reform, immigration's the new infrastructure week, right? I mean, we've been talking about it forever. And both parties have put forward ideas and George W. Bush famously championed it. And 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 at the time, people thought that maybe that, that meant, now that you had a Republican president talking about immigration reform, that maybe now was going to be the time. Um, and it's just, it hasn't happened. It hasn't happened during eras of divided government. It hasn't happened during eras of single party control. Give me a couple of months, right? Show me <laughs> over the coming months yeah. that there's this continued commitment to bipartisan dialogue and then take it out of the realm of just photo op meetings and start showing me some legislative action and I'm going to feel a lot better. But until then, I'm going to be skeptical about what Washington is actually willing to do about well, it. I'm going to commit that we're going to keep talking about this on, on this show and actually follow, follow the policy solutions or lack of um, and not just the, the photo ops. So I want to thank um, Lauren Villagran from the El Paso Times. Um, really important to have you on and, and get a true perspective uh, from El Paso itself and not just be talking about it from afar. Lauren, thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, Mo and Sarah and I will be right back for more Left, Right, and Center. Thanks for listening to Left, Right, and Center. Is there someone in your life who could benefit from hearing a civilized discussion from all sides? Share the show with them. You can stream all episodes at kcrw.com slash LRC, straight from the KCRW app or wherever you listen to podcasts. We are back with more Left, Right, and Center. I am your host, David Green. I have Sarah Isker here, staff writer at The Dispatch, and Moa Lathy, executive director at Georgetown's Institute of Politics and Public Service. So President Biden's aides found more classified documents this week in a location connected to Biden. The first set, found in November, were in Biden's former office, used after his vice presidency under President Obama. The second set at a yet-to-be-disclosed location. Now, some of these documents were found in a locked closet, and the level of classification is still unknown. But the reaction from Republicans, as you all can probably imagine, has been strong. They have accused Democrats of hypocrisy and having a double standard after their criticism of 
former President Trump for his possession of private government documents. And we should say that the Attorney General Merrick Garland has now named a special counsel to investigate these classified records uh, that were left in these places that were are associated with President Biden. So a lot to talk about. Um, Sarah, I guess I'm curious, you know, the argument from the right is hypocrisy, hypocrisy, hypocrisy. See, Biden called Trump irresponsible and now he's doing it himself. I think there are a lot of differences here. But um, what do you think? Do Republicans have a point? Let's just start big picture. What is wrong with these people? (laughs) Can you be more careful, please? These aren't Um, like this isn't, you know, these aren't like old bills or something or Christmas cards. Right. I mean, at the Department of Justice, I had a TSSCI clearance. Uh, It uh, the idea that I would accidentally remove classified documents from their, you know, they come in these little folders that are like very clearly marked, like with, you know, red siren. This is classified. Don't remove it from this folder. But I'd be like, meh, take it out of the folder, put it in a manila envelope and then accidentally leave it in the garage of my house. What? Yeah. Just all of it. All of it. It's or next to my passports and Celine Dion photos. I mean, (laughs) it's beyond beyond. The whole thing's absurd. Now, you're asking Celine Dion music right now. I would love that. (laughs) As a serious person to analyze this, okay, there are differences between what we know about Donald Trump's mishandling of classified information and what we know about Joe Biden's mishandling of classified information. But there's also a whole lot we don't know about the Joe Biden side. Um, So I want to come back to that. But first, legally speaking, Donald Trump uh, is in jeopardy under two issues, the mishandling part and the obstruction part. We don't have any evidence right now of sort of that obstruction side for Joe Biden. So in that sense, that's one difference. But on the mishandling of classified information, actually, the two are looking more and more similar, frankly. Um, And I have to say, you know, I don't think the White House has handled this well. I don't think they've been forthcoming. The fact that they found these documents, um, or rather turned them over to the National Archives, at least, six days before the midterm elections when they were hammering Donald Trump over the mishandling of documents and didn't want to mention that to the American people, I think politically, not legally, um, is telling. Um, And the fact that then two months later, they're finding more documents in the garage of his house, not great, Bob. Um, And I just, they've lost a lot of credibility here. But I'll tell you who had the best week in Washington, Merrick Garland. Congratulations, Mr. Attorney General. You had a really hard decision on your plate and it just got a lot easier because I don't see a world in which these distinctions will have a big enough legal difference um, where he'll really at this point move forward with one versus the other. And frankly, he's not going to move forward with either. Well, it's, you said that, that Garland's job has gotten easier now. Is this because he has turned all this over to two different special counsels and he can just let that play out? Oh, no, no, no. Because the decision still lands with him. That actually doesn't relieve him of anything. It actually just moves the investigation from main justice and political appointees to these special counsels. So why is his uh, job easier then now? report. Oh, because before he had to decide whether to indict a former president. That He's not going to now. That's a very easy decision now. What? Why? Because I think you'd have to indict the current president. You think You think Trump should be literally sitting there saying, thank God this all happened because that means I'm not going to be indicted over this stuff? Yeah. For what it's worth, I actually don't think that that um, they probably were going to pursue indictments against Trump on this. 
But yeah, this makes it a lot easier because, I mean, legally, the distinction between what, again, what we know at least, uh, looks very similar. The, the main difference has been, again, according to the Biden folks, when they found the classified documents, they called the National Archives right away and gave them back. Donald Trump didn't. And doesn't that make him more indictable? I mean, the obstruction stuff, isn't that a huge, a huge important difference legally? In, in, so that's on the obstruction side, but it's not on the mishandling of classified information. I mean, just on that mishandling just on side. That. But obstruction is still yeah, something he could be indicted done. on. Obstruction is, and obviously there's, there's, um, you know, some really damning stuff that we at least have been told about the Trump side in particular, saying that they had made a diligent search of the rest of the documents and not found any, and then there turned out to be more. Um, however, indicting a former president for obstruction when you can't indict them for the underlying crime itself is pretty messy. Mo, I was not neglecting you. I was just taking advantage of the fact that we have a lawyer here. Um, yeah. No, no, no disrespect. <laughs> Um, no, no. How big a problem is this for Joe Biden, especially after everything that he said about Trump? It's not great. I don't know how much of a problem it is. We'll, we'll find out, I think, in the coming days and weeks, if at all. I mean, look, first, Merrick Garland. Republicans have been enjoying up till now attacking DOJ and the Biden administration for hypocrisy and double standards. He's taken that argument away from them now. Um, the, the Biden White House surely is unhappy that there is a special counsel um, uh, uh, assigned to look at this. But the fact that the attorney general stepped outside of politics and said, you know what, we're going to look at both of these, we're going to investigate both of these, um, takes away the argument that DOJ has been politicized, or at least makes that argument for Republicans a whole lot harder. Um, look, I, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to pretend to be one. But watching a lot of legal shows, over, I mean, intent matters. Uh, at least everything I've ever been told. Intent matters. And um, be between intent and obstruction, I think you can see very clear distinctions between these two. That doesn't mean Republicans aren't going to do everything they can and maybe even being successful in the court of public opinion at muddying the waters. But Joe Biden found a handful of documents or his team found a handful of documents, turned them over. Donald Trump and his team resisted and lied about finding documents, refused to turn them over until it his home was raided, said, I didn't do anything wrong. And even if I did take them, they belong to me. As opposed to President Biden, who said, oh, no, I, we need to turn these over. Um, Trump still argues that some of those documents belong to him personally. So I think there's clear differences in intent. There's clear differences in um uh, attempts to remedy uh, any errors. There's clear attempts, uh, differences in cooperation versus obstruction. So I wouldn't foreclose um, Merrick Garland's ability to prosecute one over the other. I think that could still potentially play out. It becomes a lot more politically messy. Yeah. But I think what Merrick Garland showed us today is that he's not going to be as driven by politics as Republicans would like everyone to believe he is. Well, I, I, I'm curious about what you both think about how this is all being covered. I mean, I started thinking about this as a journalist, and I am like, it, it, it makes my stomach turn because 
I, and maybe I'm wrong about this, and, and, and both of you will either tell me I, I am, but like when I was covering George W. Bush's White House, I feel like if you take what happened with Trump totally out of it, and there was a story that the White House came out and said there were some classified documents in a Bush office in Texas that he has turned over immediately to the archives and is cooperating with the government. Like, I would have sat there with all the other reporters in the room and asked every hard question I would imagine. But I doubt there would have been a special counsel appointed. And I I doubt that it would have been that big a deal Um you know, as long as the White House and, and, and journalists were able to, to, to fact check everything and learn whatever they could. The fact that Trump did all of this and made it such a massive story because of his behavior and the obstruction changes the game for journalists in terms of how they make decisions. And don't forget Hillary Clinton. Right. In some ways, we treated the Donald Trump thing differently because of everything he had said about Hillary Clinton's mishandling of classified information. I mean, I think what he did was so egregious, we probably would have treated it in the same way. But I, but I, I hear, I hear your point. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, <laughs> you're right. I don't think there would be a special counsel to look into what Joe Biden did, but for there being a special counsel to look into what Trump did. You agree with that. I mean, of- that's significant. If you were in DOJ, you would have expected Garland, you know, to decide that this wasn't big enough for a special counsel on its own. Um, So actually, I want to asterisk that because I do feel like there's a whole lot we don't know. I mean, one of the things Mo was talking about here was intent. Um, And we seem to know a lot about the intent of Donald Trump because he tells us everything that pops into his brain. Um, We don't have that. I don't know if he's telling the truth, but yeah, he definitely tells us. So on the other side, though, let me make the alternative version of this argument, which is Donald, someone tipped off the National Archives that Donald Trump had classified information at Mar-a-Lago less than a year after he had left the White House. There was no tip on the Biden side. So instead, classified documents stayed in a garage and in a closet for six plus years. And you're telling me nobody there ever saw those documents. That box was never touched. That folder was never opened in the six years since he left the vice presidency. Maybe. But on the other hand, if it was ever opened, that's very different looking. Um, and, you know, to Mo's intent point, what if they knew that those documents had been there? Maybe they didn't understand the significance of them. Maybe they didn't think it was a big deal. Um, that does start to look really different. So the fact that we know a lot about one and not a lot about the other, um, I think, is coloring some of our perception here. And I think the difference <laughs> um, in treatment between Joe Biden and Donald Trump is largely driven by sort of this personal mania that Donald Trump has versus any potential harm to the country, frankly, that were caused by either situation. And this is what gets back to the Hillary Clinton thing. The point of handling classified information carefully is to protect the country's secrets. Hillary Clinton did a terrible job of it. Donald Trump has done a terrible job of it. And it certainly looks like Joe Biden's done a terrible job of it, too. Mo, last word. I mean, tying Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden and Donald Trump together um, in some ways. Fair? I, I think it is, and I think your question, the premise of your question is is a very fair one. Um, and it's just a, a, a symptom or, or just an example of sort of a, a media environment right now that doesn't um, uh, thrive um, on nuance, doesn't thrive on distinction. Um, and we're kind of living in a social media-driven, high-speed uh, highly polarized era where even the most well-intentioned journalists have trouble separating. Now, I will say, up till now, I have 
been relatively impressed with the media coverage of the Biden situation. I think journalists are doing generally, not all, but generally doing a good job of asking the administration legitimate questions, some tough questions, some of the issues Sarah raised about timing of disclosure, and et cetera, et cetera, which I think are f- completely fair questions for a journalist to ask, and the White House presumably has an answer to those, but they're fair questions to ask, while also pointing out the differences and the distinctions between the two. Some journalists are buying into the both sideism of this. Some journalists are um, allowing, uh, are, are focused more on the politics of this than the legal, and that's unfortunate. But I think by and large, so far, there has been a responsible, um, measured approach to the Biden story. We'll see how that plays out as more information comes out, as an investigation now proceeds. But, you know, nuance is not um, incentivized in today's media ecosystem, and we're seeing that play out more and more. Mo, doesn't it bother you a little that we never heard about this from the Biden White House? We probably never would have. It was leaked to a reporter. Um, That's how we learned about this in the first place. They weren't forthcoming about it. And they called the National Archives six days before the election and didn't tell anyone while Democrats were running on Donald Trump? Like, doesn't that bother you? I'm saying that there are very legitimate questions for journalists to ask. That is definitely a legitimate question for journalists to ask, and they are asking. Um, Fair. But to, to, to David's question about, you know, how the media is covering this, um, this is really treacherous territory for the media in in making sure that they do the kind of uh, asking tough questions and holding government officials accountable without losing sight of the distinctions between two very different situations at a time when one side is desperately trying to eliminate those distinctions. Um, it's, it's tricky. And, you know, I, I, I've worked with, we've all worked with enough reporters to know that, that it could go horribly wrong very quickly. So far, a few days into this episode, I think they've been trying to be measured. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. And it is time for our left, right, and center rants and raves. Uh, Mo Alethi, I'll start with you. What didn't we get to today? Let's rave Great. about the ozone layer. <laughs> the UN uh, this week announced, uh, released a, a scientific assessment that showed that the hole in the ozone layer is actually mending. This was a big topic back in the 1970s, in the 1980s. It became a central theme in several presidential campaigns in in the 1990s and in 2000. Uh, But what the UN has found is that because of international cooperation, we have begun to take the measures needed to see the hole in our ozone layer decrease, and they expect it to be fully mended within the next four decades. That's slow, but it is progress. 
It shows what we can do when we come together as an international community and follow the science. And if we can do it there, there's no reason to believe we can't do the same when it comes to the bigger issue that is still a problem of climate change. All right. Uh, Sarah, what is on your mind today? I will do a shortened rave because I don't think we've raved about Bluey on this show yet. And it is the best kids programming available anywhere. It's an Australian PBS show about an Australian blue healer, little girl. Everything about the show is magical. But most magical of all is that the parents are realistic, eye-rolling fantastic parents where you're not, you know, it's not that the dad's dumb and the mom's awesome. Nope. Dad is awesome. Mom is awesome. They have little sarcastic asides. They're struggling with parenting choices. And so, yeah, it's probably more for the parents than the kids, but kids love it. Yay, Bluey. Okay. I'm going to, I don't know if it's rant or rave or just note that the, the burger wars are about to intensify in Nashville because in and out just announced that they are going farther east than they've ever been. They're going to have their first in and out burger in Nashville. And Whataburger from Texas is already there. I am going to say this. I'm probably going to get destroyed for it. Whataburger's better. I'm sorry, California. Yes. yes and, yes. and there's a guy named Brandon Mercer who wrote in the Houston Chronicle recently. He is from San Francisco, but he wrote that Whataburger is better for the fries the 24-hour-a-day openness, the customer service, and better sauces. He did give the nod to In-N-Out for a few things, but declared that Whataburger's better. I went to Whataburger all the time in Waco when I was covering George Bush at Crawford. I love Whataburger. In-N-Out needs to get better, but I will wait to hear from the people of Nashville because every bite and every vote matters. What about Jack in the Box? Jack and I mean Google newborn Whataburger photo shoot and it's a baby wrapped in a Whataburger um, wrapper and put on a tray with the Coke and the fries and it's amazing. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna Google it right now. And Jack in the Box, Mo. <laughs> I mean, if you want next next week, if you wanna if you wanna give us the argument for Jack in the Box, I'm here for it. Yeah, no, I, I may have to. I feel like it's getting short thrifted in this in this conversation. <laughs> I promise you, the floor will be yours to do that. <laughs> Uh, that's all the time we have. Sarah Isgramo Lathy, thank you as always. Left, Right, and Center is produced by Sarah Singer Schiff. Our production assistant is Alexander Applegate. Our executive producer is Arnie Seipel. The show is recorded and mixed by Matt Schwartz. Todd M. Simon composed our theme music. Left, Right, and Center is a co-production of KCRW and Fearless Media. I am David Green. Come back next week for more Left, Right, and Center. Download and subscribe at kcrw.com slash LRC, the KCRW app, or wherever you find podcasts. Left, Right, and Center is produced and distributed by KCRW. 